0: in the book of Zechariah. Um, thank you for your presence here, especially because that indicates that not everyone has lost interest in the of prophet. The focus of this session is God's grace as described, especially in chapter 12, and specifically the second half of chapter 12 of the book of Zechariah. We'll get there in due time, but in the hour or so that we have together, I'm first to see that section in the context of the book as a whole, and ultimately in the context of the New Testament as well. This approach will let us see how the New Testament writers drew upon Zechariah in the presentation of Christ and his personal work as the ultimate fulfillment of Zechariah's message. That New Testament angle will also lay the groundwork for practical reflection on how God's grace presented in that book lays claim to the lives of believers. Grace, as I'm sure you know, refers to unmerited faith. We've heard a lot about that already at this moment. Although human beings can exercise grace towards one another, divine grace toward human beings is uniquely glorious in light of our sinfulness in God's holiness, majesty, and sovereignty. Our study of Zechariah will therefore focus on redemptive grace, God's grace, its covenantal context, and its effect. As I hope to show, to speak of grace in Zechariah is to speak of great and glorious things, and of God above all, his character, his attributes his promises, and his actions. God's grace makes sinners like us uh, able to know him as he truly is in his holiness, majesty, mercy, and truth. It enables us to see sin as sin, but also to repent of and turn from sin. Ultimately, as we will see, God's grace will bring his perfected people into the full enjoyment of him in the new heavens and the new earth. Such grace is truly amazing. Just in terms of how this will go, about halfway through, I'll stop for questions. If something pressing comes up in your mind and it's better to get it answered then, you'll get a chance to do so. Um, There will be a chance for questions and discussion also at um, the end. One technical word that I want to just define for you now, if you haven't been reading too much biblical studies, that's okay. But the word eschatology or eschatological just refers to things that occur at the end of time. From the Bible's perspective, that is the period of time between Christ's first coming and his second coming. So as the, the epistle to the Hebrews says, we're living in these last days. So they have begun. Uh, it doesn't need to necessarily for to the very last thing, Christ's return for example, which will happen. Since we'll be digging into scripture, let's ask God for his help as we do so. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for your Spirit's work, which opens our hearts to understand it and to receive it. We thank you for this opportunity to look into it. We ask for your grace, your spirit's work to make us receptive to make us humble to sit at your feet and to learn We ask for uh, wills that are tender and ready to be bent to conform to yours and we ask for lives which reflect in our thoughts and words and deeds your work uh, in our lives for your glory. We pray these things In Jesus' name Okay, so you have a handout and you can follow pretty easily. I think the main sections of my talk. Uh, now and then, a section might seem to be stray. That's just in there somewhere. So we'll begin with redemptive historical context of zechariah's ministry. By that, all I mean is we want to see where yes, just more handouts are there. I don't have any. Oh yes, this okay. is good news and bad news at the same time. <laughs> uh, if you're sitting next to someone and you have two, if you could send that up in some discreet fashion. Thank you. I'll be as clear as I can with the the um, By redemptive historical setting we just mean where does Zephaniah's ministry and the what he says about what, uh, what God is doing and going to do fit into the larger scheme of things, from creation to the new creation. So we'll begin with exile and return. That's the first subheading on the handout. Which is basically a review of Israel's history up until the time of Zechariah. So Zechariah is ministering just after the exile, and we'll get there in a few moments. So, as you know, the kingdom of Israel began. If you're looking for the kingdom under a good king, with David. Unfortunately, the United Kingdom of the twelve tribes lasted about two kings. So, after and two kings, so after Solomon's reign, the kingdom split into two: the larger kingdom in the north and the smaller kingdom of Judah in the south. Despite being much larger and on a political level much more able, the Northern Kingdom of Israel quite quickly went astray. If you remember the, the account of what Jeroboam did right after the split, he reorganizes the co- points of the priests, it takes a sharp turn to the left, if you will, uh, without delay, and if that's about 930, by 722, the the, Southern Kingdom, the Northern Kingdom of Israel has been destroyed by the Assyrians as a consequence of their infidelity. The southern kingdom had more faithful kings, all of whom were descended from David, but slowly but surely they followed in the way of the northern kingdom, and in 586 the Babylonians come as punishment for its infidelity. Um, At the same time, most of the elite and the leaders from Judah were exiled from Judah to prevent any organized rebellion afterwards. So that that Babylonians trying to put a lid on it to make sure they didn't come off the ground. About 50 years after that, the Babylonian Empire falls to the Persians. This is in 539, and shortly after this, we'll meet, uh, so to speak, Zechariah and Haggai. Now, uh, the Persian Empire implemented a policy in which uh, peoples formerly captured by the Babylonian Empire could return to their homelands, first of all, and if they had uh, sanctuaries to the gods which had been destroyed, the Persian Emperor was willing to pay for their being rebuilt, because being a polytheistic person, he wanted to make sure that none of the gods were, in fact, irritated or upset with them, so he wanted to pacify them by funding those kinds of programs. This is what you find in Ezra 1, uh, where the decree of Osiris is recorded. So, in 538, Shesh-bazar, you may remember him from the book of Ezra, leads the first return from Persia, parts of Persia, to the land of Judah. And as Ezra reports, uh, they begin rebuilding the temple, starting with the altar. That goes on for a little while until the people who were in the land get organized and protest that. They ask the, the Persian king to stop. He temporarily pauses the rebuilding of the temple. So, uh, that leaves us, if, we're, if you put yourself in the shoes of the people, of the Judeans who return, in a very unpromising situation. Uh, the temple's construction <coughs> interrupted, Uh, Especially if you're thinking of what the prophets had promised would come about later, you're not seeing these things. There's no Davidic king on the throne. There's no king at all. The land in which they're living is Persian territory. It's not their territory any longer. There are no non-Israelites coming to the temple because the temple is not even built yet. Rebuilt yet, Um, and they're under taxation and so on—a rather heavy burden on the part of the Persians. Now, these are therefore uh, dark days, but as if you want to think metaphorically of Zechariah's message, light shines more dark, more likely, brightly in the dark. Um, add to that, that if you remember Haggai 1, uh, the uh, enthusiasm for rebuilding the temple had basically petered out, and Haggai has to say, well, your houses are done, why is the house of the Lord not built? So there's all these external factors, in addition to which the people who returned seem to have lost their enthusiasm for the project. Nonetheless, and this is where the positiveness of Zechariah's message becomes very clear, God will, in a certain sense, regardless of how his people act, bless them anyways and make sure that his plan to redeem them advances. So, if, as we will see in Zechariah shortly, he promises, among other things, to dwell among his people, even though presently the temple is not done, to deal fully with their sin and their guilt, which is an unresolved issue at this time. To reestablish David's dynasty. There being no Davidite other than Zerubbabel. It's kind of an indirect David, And to bring the nations under his rule. So the reality on the ground is very negative. What Ze- Zechariah is announcing is very positive. So we're, we're this a uh, pretty common uh, disjunction between the, what the audience is living and what the prophet is saying God is going to do. So it calls for faith, obviously. But that is where we find ourselves with uh, Zechariah. Okay, section two, uh, grace and glory, Zechariah. What I want to do here is give you an overview of the book before we look at chapter twelve. In particular. So you can follow. If you have a Bible, you can follow along. I'll give you the references, which are also on the handout, and it might help you wade your way through the book when you look at it next time. Um, the book begins with a very brief warning, the first six or seven verses uh, to his audience to take the prophet seriously. That's what their fathers didn't do, which is, what happened to their fathers? The exile happened to their fathers. Uh, happily, Zechariah's audience seems to be much more receptive, they commit to uh, repenting and listening to him, so this little glimmer of hope is the first of many, which we will see uh, in the book. So let's look at first, the first three visions. There are eight in the first part of the book. We'll look at them in groups so that we don't spend too much time climbing through the visions and not get to chapter 12. Uh, the first three visions provide an overview of God's future acts of salvation. It's a big picture of sketch. Uh, the first one, this is in 1 7 through I think the end of uh, through verse 18 or so. Uh, assure them that the nations who are currently very much at ease with the status quo, meaning Jude- is, Judeans are displaced, they don't have a king, they don't have a temple, this doesn't trouble the nations at all, and the nations are typically both Israel's enemies and God's enemies. Um, the first vision, therefore, shows that God is not at ease with this picture. The, the fact that the nations are comfortable with this means that God is upset, quite angry, in fact, at the nation's uh, carelessness for his glory and for the good of his people. So, the angel asks a question in verse 12 of chapter 1, which suggests how God's compassion can be interrupted. Why is his anger still burning against his people? He says that this will not continue. He intends to act. And to return with compassion, so the compassion is apparently interrupted, he will manifest his compassion once again uh, in the near future. The second vision, the last few verses of chapter 1, 18 through 21, affirms that God will indeed punish the nations that mistreated his people. To follow up on the first vision. The third, all of chapter 2, announces that God's presence will be both a wall around Jerusalem to protect it and the glory in the middle of it. So we're already starting to see that the restoration of Jerusalem is not just rebuilding the walls. You know that project from Ezra Nehemiah. It's much more than that. It's, It's going to stretch the definition of Jerusalem by the time we get to the end of the book. God also promises in uh, the 3rd uh, the vision, so chapter 2 uh, not only to be um, in and around Jerusalem, but to attract non-Israelites to himself and to integrate them in his people. There's a, I don't have the verse here, but there's a phrase saying that other non-Israelites will be joined to him. This is very strong covenantal language. They'll attach themselves to him as their God. So that too is quite an advance over the status quo and until now the nations have been Israel's Israel's adversaries 9 times out of 10 now to summarize very briefly grace and how it is evident in these three visions remember the background these are very encouraging they're, they're almost incredibly positive presentations of what God is going to do to change this very negative reality that his people are living to something incredibly positive um in covenantal terms, for example, he'll be fulfilling his covenant with Abraham when he brings all nations and peoples to himself. When he restores uh, uh, the kingship, he'll be fulfilling the Davidic dynasty, and so on. The Davidic covenant, and so on. There's a nice turn of phrase in chapter 12, which we'll get to in a time, but I want to use that same idea of God transforming something into its opposite, which really captures the radical nature of what's going on here. In the first few visions, we see God turn anger into compassion, Two very different things. The ruins of Jerusalem into a city and a temple, which is what he's seeing around him as he prophesies to these people. A remnant, a small group of maybe 50,000 who came back from Persia into this massive nation. Uh, and, as the textbooks of a little later, a day of small things into a day of great things. This is possible, to come back to this conference's theme, only because God is gracious and compassionate. Visions 4 and 5, this is chapters 3 and 4. The fourth vision turns to the problem of Israel's sin, which is central. That's why one of these is probably why it appears at the center of this series of visions. Despite, and this is an important point, despite the fact that they had returned from exile, they, they moved from point A to point B on the map, the condition of exile, and especially being under the curse oh, of exile as punishment for sin, continues. As we'll see in these visions, therefore, these visions get to the heart of the problem. They're already back in what used to be their territory, but even if they had a king, even if they had uh, non-Israelites appearing at the uh, the temple, the problem is not solved, because the fundamental problem is sin. This vision then adds, uh, both presents that problem, but does so in order to present the solution. This is the one with Joshua, not the high priest and his clothes, and uh, the fact that they are dirt disqualifying him for service and representing the sinful nature of both the priesthood and the people at large. So in this fourth vision, the the priest's clothes are changed, he's purified symbolizing that God will one day remove the sin that has his people in this exilic uh, experience despite despite their uh, relocation. God also adds that he'll send a branch, this Davidic king that was promised, for example, in uh, Jeremiah 23, and remove the iniquity of the land in a single day so again, we're talking. He's speaking to an audience who is under the curses of the Sinai Covenant, but also not announcing that this will be the entire situation will be radically changed in an instant. The fifth vision, now in chapter four, emphasizes God's covenantal commitment to David's line, the first by Zerubbabel, and that also explains the close connection between uh, David and the temple, which will be rebuilt. He says. Uh, not by human might or power but by his spirit so in terms of getting at grace in these two visions note for example that God is the only active person here, he's the one driving the whole situation that that he's announcing here beforehand Uh, so he's in other words, he's sovereign his grace is free, it's certainly not merited by the people he's going to exercise it on behalf of and yet he will And not only is the the nature of grace here, the extent of grace is impressive because it's not a small part of Judah that will be rehabilitated. It's not a part of a covenant that will be fulfilled, but all the covenants and all the people. So the removal of iniquity from the land as a whole is all that can be done. That's that's the full removal of sin. Vision 6 through 8. This is chapter 5, 1 through 6, verse 8. The first two form a pair, you'll see that. There's the, vision number six of this scroll that goes out over the land, which is two commandments written on it um, that are probably a summary of the Decalogue and the affirmation that those who um, rebel those who are guilty of these things will be cut off from of the land. So they're going to leave the land so I said a moment ago uh, that the definition of Jerusalem is going to be stretched. The land also becomes, as it were, the only land even though it's only part of the globe it becomes very, very um, elastic the seventh vision, the corresponding one, talks about, again, the full removal of wickedness from the land. This is when iniquity is placed in a basket. It's carried off by angels to the north and stays there, far from the land, because that makes the land what it is supposed to be, meaning free from sin. We come to the last vision, the eighth. This is chapter 6, 1 through 8, which corresponds to the first vision. Remember, there are horses and, uh, they, uh, with and they produce the, the knowledge that Uh, The nations are at ease, and God is angry about the fact that the nations are at ease. This kind of closes that loop because now the horses and chariots uh, bring back the news that God's spirit is at rest. So he announces that in due time, by eliminating the enemies that are these nations, the problem that was remarked in the first vision is now dealt with fully in the last vision. So it kind of brings closure to the series of visions. In terms of grace in those divisions, again, there's a strong emphasis on forgiveness. So six and seven, no one in Judah does anything to take iniquity out of the land. They just are told this vision, Insofar so far as God is the one, uh, only one able to do that, they simply benefit from His gracious actions. Okay, that brings us to what I call the transition to chapters nine and fourteen, which we find in these. Rest of, of the book between six and nine and the end of chapter eight. Here you find some very, I keep saying very positive things. But the book is stuffed with good news of God's grace and His intention to exercise it. If you look just to look at some verses in chapter eight here, say that from um, verse eight onward, um, God will restore and save His people because they are His and He is theirs. They'll bring peace, this is verse 12. Blessing in verse 13. Good in verse 15. And joy and gladness in verse 19. And as we've seen once or twice already, his salvation is going to reach beyond his ancient, uh, his old covenant people Israel to the nations. So you find in verse uh, 22 that many peoples and strong nations will come to worship the Lord. Again, this is very wonderful things. against the backdrop of a very unpromising reality, which Zechariah's uh, audience is living uh, day by day. We're almost done with the overview, I hope you're still tracking, and we'll get to the time for questions in just a moment. The rest of the book of Zechariah, so this is now chapters 9 through 14, uh, consists of a number of prophecies, we'll look at one obviously, uh, that explore further these eschatological events. How is God going to? Categorically change the condition of his people and move it rapidly towards perfection, meaning the full accomplishment of his covenant purposes. So in brief scope, chapter 9, and we'll see that in this half of the book, uh, the Davidic Messiah plays a very prominent role in different ways. But chapter 9 introduces the Davidic Messiah, who, for example, is very closely connected to the temple and uh, to the rule of his people, issues of justice and righteousness. Chapter 10, so that's the kind of ruler that they need. Chapter 10 and chapter 11 as well talk about other kinds of shepherds, meaning rulers that have been, whether foreign or Israelite, ruling over God's people more or less to their hurt. So, doing what shepherds should not do, something not beneficial to the sheep. These problems will be resolved, and then Yahweh will put in place his uh, Davidic side. So, chapters 10 and 11 talk about the removal of uh, corrupt self-serving rulers who don't have God's purposes as their purposes, and, in the light of chapter 9, the coming of the messiah in their place. Chapter 12 and chapter 14 both present a battle. This is 12, 1 through 9, present a brief overview of a battle in which Yahweh does away with his enemies, so think of the nations from the Christian second divisions. Chapter 12 is more brief, chapter 14 is more t- detailed, uh, but that Pair of battles, kind of brackets, chapters twelve through fourteen. Now, in the passage we will look at, just by way of uh, anticipation, this is twelve ten through the end of chapter thirteen. Uh, there are several interrelated aspects of what we can call spiritual transformation that get at the heart of. I mentioned earlier that sin is the root problem. So it's one thing to say that iniquity will, will be removed from the land, but what does that mean on a personal level? The passages that we'll look at. Uh, Open that question, explore that question a little more. So there is, for example, mourning, and this uh, with the you, weeping, lamentation at the end of chapter twelve, cleansing from sin, and then purification uh, later in chapter thirteen. So these are, if you will, the core of the. It shows where the solution to the sin problem has its most is most concentrated, where the hardest work needs to be done at the personal level, because that's where sin resides. It's not in the trees. Light. So if you want to summarize, summarize those two parts of the book before we move on, uh, chapters 9-14, uh, through 14, more or less spell out in selected detail by focusing on the Davidic king, by focusing on this battle between Yahweh and the nations, uh, the way that the grace promised earlier in these eight visions is going to be worked out in real time. Okay. Let me stop for a moment and see if there are any questions that you want to ask before we go on, so that one's you lost for the whole speech, just perhaps half. Yes? Uh, can you just sum up, again, a definition of divine grace for me? I just want to make sure I understood and heard you clearly. Well, this, the short answer would simply be unmerited favor. Uh, that's the most, most way divine grace. What I wanted to add to that is that um, and someone used an illustration earlier today we can give each other unmerited favor, pay your phone bill, for example. What sets God's grace apart is who God is and who we are, and the fact that the grace is so much more unmerited. That would be my first. Yes? Do we know anything about how Zechariah was called uh, his early... You know, we we get a picture of Jeremiah. Right. No, we know very little for Haggai and Zechariah. We have uh, in the Haggai's case, in Zechari's case, we have the mention of his father and grandfather, uh, but almost nothing other than that. They, they appear on the scene very briefly in 520, and that's the first and last time that we see them. Anything else? I'm hard of hearing, so I may have, you might have said something that i asked Well, uh, oh, this is, we believe that this is for the future. Now, how yep. do how the ones that talk about the... Uh, Replacement theology. I don't know if replacement theology would change very much. Where you would see differences is if, is if someone would be pre-millennial um, be church. Um, place. I done. Yes, I wouldn't say that. Um, we'll come back to that question in the second half. Was the Christ speaking first later, isn't it? And he says, "I will pour. Uh, It's you. I would I'd say God speak now. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, we'll come to that, too. You're asking good question <laughs> Yes? Could you please summarize again the, the, the dark background, like what's going on at the, of the time? Right, so the one good way to see this would be to think of the kingdom under David. So you've got a temple, you've got a Davidic king, you've got all 12 tribes, uh, you've got some non-Israelites coming to see what's impressive about Yahweh, the for and so on and so forth. Um, they own their land. We assume when we say the land of Israel, we think it's theirs by divine gift. <coughs> Contrast that then with their living. I've skipped the use the word Yehud, but Yehud is Persia's term for this territory. So they changed its name because it's no longer Israelite territory. It's theirs. Hmm. So it doesn't belong to them. There is no Davidic king. There is no temple. No, no non-Israelites coming to see what's so impressive about Yahweh because these people are basically dispossessed of the land and. Hmm. Nothing really to talk about. Um, added to that, then, in Haggai, it's, it's less evident here that Zachariah, Zechariah seems to be, his, his audience meeting was prepared, as it were, by Haggai. But when Haggai addresses his audience for the first time, he says, you guys have rebuilt your, and you realize in the post exilic period, they don't have a lot to work with. They came back as refugees hundreds of miles across the desert from Los Nonetheless, they were able to find what they needed to rebuild their houses, and yet the temple is kind of sitting over there, this pile of stones. So that guy says, look, things are backwards. You've rebuilt your homes, and the wood panel, actually, which is kind of a luxurious touch, and the temple has barely begun to be rebuilt. So add to the objective stuff on the ground, the, the fact that the people involved seem to be um, under-motivated, uh, or have the priorities backwards. Mm-hmm. In fact. Yes, sir? Um, The visions began and closed with the horses, and the first set were sort of chill, and the second one are straining, and they got their chariots. Obviously, when I think horses, the horses in their revelation make for phenomenal bedtime stories. Are the color of these horses happening in Zechariah? Is there any relation at all to eschatological events coming down later, or is the color just something there for a good picture of what's happening? The best answer to that would probably be that there's not a consensus as to the colors of the horses. What they do, though, you see lots of period through in terms of the themes, but for the colors themselves, I would abstain, personally from any, myself, I'm not recommending to you, but I would abstain from any, any reading of the colors. Okay. You can always come back to that, you know, when you've read the book 20 more times and make a more informed judgment, but that's why. Okay. That's <laughs> why I'm <laughs> <more> <laughs> going to With the visions... You read about this ephod, stork, and lead. You, know, you drew the, you know, the interpretation of this is sin being removed. how do you think through that when you're reading these visions to try to come up with a, you know, like a better word, hermeneutic to interpret those in a way that you feel confident that that's what that lead symbolized, was sin. I assume that, I'm guessing. But. Well, in that case, it says this is an They, they identify what's in it. Usually I take your You have to pay attention to some of the details because sometimes it's not, the, it's not the most obvious thing. Like the, the prophet will see certain things. I'll ask the question. Someone will come to me and clarify this is that. Um, for example, the the earlier vision with the scroll. So the scroll goes out over the land. If we didn't know what was written on it, we wouldn't have any idea. But we're told what's written on it, so it looks like selections from the Ten Commandments. We understand that the scroll and the Ten Commandments have something to say about those in the land, so we understand that it's, plus from the consequences, everyone is not capable to of cut off. Ah, so this is the curse of the law coming on to disobedience. Um, to take the earlier questions a little, the main points of the it's kind of like parables sometimes, and that you need to be content with the main point. Um, the colors of the horses is probably, because nothing is said about it, probably at least less significant than the fact that in vision number one, because the nations are sitting back in content with things as Judah suffers, and God's name is not honored. Um, that's, that's the problem, and God says so. And in the eighth vision, wherever the horses go, and why the mountains are bronze, not some other metal? Um, our questions to leave in suspense. Whereas the fact that God's Spirit comes to rest in the north country where iniquity was sent, this uh, leads us to understand that that problem, even the disobedience of the nations, will be dealt with in an definitive way. But that's 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 a easy summary. But how that happens, chapter fourteen will add some details, but um, maybe not as much as we would want. Any other questions before we move on? Okay. So far, so good. We are now at the uh, point of someone said chapter 3, but it's not going to be that one. Uh, section 3 on the handout, a closer look at the passage of, of was chosen for me and that I've then modified of my own free will, 12, 10 to 13, 9. And uh, I went past 13, 1, which is what you see in your program, because of this whole section, as I said, is uh, several different perspectives on the changes that take place that God brings about, more precisely. In his people as he renews them. So that's the, the main idea here. This passage, especially the beginning part, 12, 10 to 14, is unique because it's the only passage in the book uh, that says weeping is part of the process of renewal, at least a consequence of what God will do for his people. Interestingly, if you look back in chapter 7 or 8, 7, I think, the people are told no longer to no longer to celebrate four fasts that they've set up in the book, which means stop fasting in a, a wordplay, start feasting. So there's a, there's a movement across the book, which like I said, is very positive. And in the middle, we have this scenario which shows mourning is very normal and necessary in the process of renewal. So it's a curious passage for that reason. Um, and if you look at chapter 12, just for a moment, Even chapter 12 itself, the first nine verses are this first shorter uh, summary of the battle that I mentioned, in which God does away with his people's enemies and protects them. That's positive. Why is then that followed by this next section that we'll begin looking at in a moment, in verse 10, when God pours out his spirit of grace and supplication on his people, who then begin to mourn? Where does this fit in the flow of the book? One partial answer to that question would be, if you're still looking at 12, 1 through 9, this is how God deals with sin out in the nations. Those nations that don't repent, a little clarity here, will come under his judgment. Okay, So sin is the problem dealt with in 12, 1 through 9, among the nations. In 10 through 14, sin among his people is going to be dealt with, but not in the same way, because God's people will be spared, pardoned. That's what this, uh, verse 10 and following, begins to explore. So, in other words, what's common between those two sections, 12, 1 to 9, supposedly very positive, and 12, 10 to 14, negative, is God is resolving the problem of sin in two very different ways. Punishment on the one hand, forgiveness on the other. Okay, along with that, just to to set the stage for the the subheadings that follow, so in 12, 10 to 14, God grants his spirit, which, uh, one could say it this way, lets people see their sin... And they then mourn. So God does what is necessary to enable them to recognize their sin and to take it seriously and to respond as they ought. That's 10 through 14. In the rest of chapter 13, which we'll look at after that, we have cleansing and purification. So that the process of repentance, if you will, carries on, or other facets of it are added. So we see that it's not just uh, me feeling sorry for my sin, there are changes going on inside me first of all, in terms of repentance driven by the spirit, as it says, but also God is removing sin from his people's hearts in chapter 13. That comes, if you peek ahead, to the very end of chapter 13, to a very positive uh, outcome, although there's purification going on, purification meaning even purifying his people, meaning removing some of them through judgment. So look at just 13.9 to get both sides of that picture in the he says, I will bring the one-third, that is, one-third of his people, the others have been judged and set aside. I will bring the one-third to the fire, where refined, and the silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. And here's the very positive part, that brings this section to a close. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people, and each one will say, the Lord is my God. So that's where this section is headed, which is a very glorious direction indeed. Okay, so let's back up to Luke twelve verse ten. The first thing said is that God pours out his spirit, or more precisely, a spirit of grace and supplication, um, with those following results. Um, This sounds a lot like Joel two, if you recall Joel two, for God's spirit being poured out, they call on the name of the Lord. That's coming up, as we saw at the end of chapter thirteen, but we're not quite there yet. Uh, Zechariah wants to show that the problem of sin is going to be not just dealt with in some clinical way, but he wants to show what that looks like in the lives and the actions and the self-knowledge of God's people. Uh, Just to state the obvious in light of the conference's theme, nothing would have happened to God's people had he not done this. They would be entirely hopeless, stuck put it in non-theological language. No one can help me solve this problem except God. Now, if we look at 12 verse 10, we come to the question, the the first and question anticipated. Um, What exactly is going on here? What is driving these changes? So 12 verse 10, your translation might be a little different than mine. Um, They will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him, as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Um, first of all, let me just remind you that God acts and his people respond. Spiritual change becomes manifest in his people. This is a grace-driven process. Um, even the spirit of prayer and supplications, God graciously enables them to pray to him for grace. So this is a circle which is God-enabled in which grace is the beginning and the end of the process. Uh, Secondly, one of the results of the spirit being poured out is that they see their sins in such a way that they mourn for them. And not just mourn if you will, for five minutes or something it's a deep profound mourning. That's why you get these comparisons with as if they were mourning an only child. The, old, the focus of all one's love as a parent is suddenly removed by some tragedy from this life. That's the kind of uh, mourning that we see with David and Absalom. It's the kind of mourning that we see from a different angle uh, with the Egyptians and the loss of their firstborn sons uh, at the Temple Plague. It's a very, very deep grief. Now, here, the grief is, of course, not caused by the loss of a loved one, but by its sin. But they realized, and you might have noticed that word in 1210. Uh, God says they will look on him whom they have pierced. That's a metaphor, surely, but um, and it probably implies the violence of sin against God. It's not so much that God is transpierced with pain by their sin. It's more the metaphor that they did everything possible to get him out of the way, let him, let them live their lives as they wanted to live. So it's a violent it captures something of a violent rebellion that sin is. Um, if you, I won't read all the verses here, but a little further in this section, you see that the whole land borns, we have David and his son, we have Levi and his son um, the whole people of God, because remember we're dealing with a remnant here, the whole people of God is characterized by this profound sorrow over sin that's step one if you go over the sequence, it's not the most important thing but when God pours out his spirit in grace to bring his people into salvation, this is part and parcel of that process there's no going around mm-hmm. Now, to come back to that verse that was asked about 1210, the second part, um, it distinguishes between God who speaks as the me, it's the first clause there, and then there are two, two other clauses in which uh, this other person is more important. They have to him in some way. We're not quite told yet what exactly happened. We have to look forward to another context in 13, verse 7 to know this is God's shepherd himself who's appeared there. And arguably is certainly the best candidate for this second person mentioned here in twelve verse ten. This is confirmed, moreover, by John nineteen thirty seven, um, meaning God is announcing beforehand that Jesus Christ, the shepherd of His people, will be pierced in their place. So, if we put twelve ten, if we read twelve ten, in the light of thirteen seven, we come to see that God is saying that uh, His Son will be pierced for His people's sin which adds, as someone also said earlier today, the grief is not only over sin, it's also over the cost of forgiveness. It's, it realizes that sin is not something easily spun, which we can't do anyways. It took the death of the Son of God and nothing less. My last remark is to say that, even on this passage, is to say that not, even though that um, 10 to 14 comes first, morning comes first, we don't want to think that repentance is something that occurs at the beginning of the Christian life and is left behind as being soul drawn in joy. Uh, let me just remind you of Luther's first thesis. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. This is the first dimension. It's not the chapter which we're closing. Move on. Next, on your handout, this is 13, 1 through 9, cleansing, purification, and covenant. So, there is mourning, It's not the only thing. That's what chapter 13 shows. The second complementary element in chapter 13 uh, of the experience of God's future people involves cleansing, purification, and what you might call covenant consummation. This last half of verse 9 where people turn to God and say, you are mine, and they say, he says, you are mine. Um, There is... Let me find you the verse here. Uh, in the first verse of chapter 13, this fountain is open for the house of David and Jerusalem, which is basically everyone, um, for sin and uncleanness. Sin and uncleanness are two terms, especially from the Old Testament. They're just meant to be like an A and a Z. Okay. All kinds of offenses, sins, failings, flaws, all of that um, will be washed away by this fountain. Contrast, to contrast that, if it weren't possible, this goes back to the earlier question of the status quo, if this weren't possible, people would simply be stuck in their guilt, condemned, imagine no sacrificial system, nothing is in place to take it away permanently, that is what God is providing in this section. And if you remember 12, 10, and 137, this taking away of sin is not, there's no sacrifice offered in the Levitical cultic sense. There's no, no one goes to the temple, no one goes to the tabernacle, tabernacle to offer a sacrifice. This person is mourned for when they offended. In 137, that is almost certainly God's shepherd. The offer of this fountain is made possible by the piercing of God's shepherd. Next, uh, this is now 2 through 6 of chapter 13. Uh, I won't read it, but in this um, follow up purification of his people, God promises to cut off idols and false prophets. Now, you probably could have guessed if I asked you for the top five sins, you surely would have mentioned idolatry for the Old Testament. False prophets, maybe not. So, as far as explaining why idolatry is here, yes, indeed it is. Unfortunately, probably the classic sin. You can think of the golden calf. If you want to think about the exile right before it, Ezekiel has a vision in chapter 8 where he he, puts a little hole in the wall and peeks into the temple and they've got all kinds of foreign people there, foreign gods, animals that are unclean, all kinds of horrendous things are being worshipped in the temple. Um, It's a major, major sin. Why? If you think of commandments 1 and 2 from the Decalogue, no other gods before me, don't worship me any other way than I prescribe. So you have to worshiping God after our imagination, um, in the ways that suit us find that is idolatry, and that is basically a rejection of God. False prophecy, if I asked you one of the top five sins, you probably wouldn't have identified that, nor would I. Um, nonetheless, remember, we're listening to a prophet speak to an audience. Um, it's very important that God's people know what he says and what he doesn't say. So, this this passage is very, very closely tied to Deuteronomy 13. That's the chapter in which Moses says, "Look, well, somebody, could your, your brother or your your in-laws invite you? Say, you know, we should go worship another god. You're to have them put to death after due process. So it has to be taken with utmost seriousness. It's it's important that God's people know what His will is. Therefore, if you're a false prophet, um, you're going to corrupt that whole process. God's the normative quality of God's words is going to be diluted. Now, it's one thing to say that God will take these things away. What's interesting is to see that his people reflect the same priorities as he continues his work in death. Let me explain myself here. This appears a little later, um, say in verse uh, 3. So at the end of verse 2, God says, I will cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to depart from the land. That's the objective apart from talking about people individually. The next verse goes on to show that the people's commitment to God's word through his prophets, after God has renewed his people, will be so exclusive that were false prophets to appear among them in the event, those prophets would attempt to go about incognito. So they dress up, they deny that they're actually a false prophet, that, no, I'm a farmer, I'm here, and I'm there, and so-and-so, and so-and-so is my father. So if they're trying to avoid the punishment of false prophets, that God's people now properly sensitized to the importance of his words would inflict a bond, because false prophets have a very um, unpromising end, if you look at the tentative of a loss. So the point is not just that God removes these things, but that the lives of God's people, their priorities, and even their alertness, because some, when the false prophet denies, um, in verse 5, I'm a farmer, someone talking to keep cattle, the Israelite says, but you, you look, uh, presumably they're asking these questions because they recognize something false in his message, but they're also saying, you seem to have the kind of marks that false prophets sometimes do have when they hurt themselves. Think of Baal's prophets, who cut themselves in 1 Kings 19. This kind of disfiguration and mutilation goes on sometimes in false prophets. So the person hears the message, says, look, you seem like a false prophet. The person denies and says, oh, I know you are. I can see it, and I can hear it. So the people's spiritual senses attuned, just as God's was, when he, as it were, uh, determined which prophets are false and expelled them from the land. The final element, this is now verses 7 through 9 of chapter 13, the final element that Zechariah adds to this description of the renewal of God's people, that's what this whole section is about in 1210, beginning with the the lamentation through the end of chapter 13, involves the death of God's shepherd, that I've talked about already, and the purification of his people. let me just remind you again that the death of the shepherd makes possible everything that is going on here. In other words, the spiritual renewal is not separable, cannot be separated from what God's Messiah is and does. So, the profound grief and repentance in chapter 10, the heart chapter 12, the renewal of the heart, the provision of cleansing from sin and uncleanness, surely in the fountain, the removal of idolatry, which we just talked about, and now the purification of his people all are possible only because God does what he does through his Messiah. Um, I would suggest to you, this is not a terribly important point, but at the end of chapter 13, I would suggest that we are dealing here with nothing less than the new covenant, because remember, the people are under the curse of the Sinai covenant. They can't get out from it. So they need another paradigm in which to come to forgiveness, because the Sinai covenant won't give it to them because they're guilty. They are stuck. It's a dead end. Some things that make me think that this is in fact a new covenant here at the end of chapter 13 would be, among other things, the fact that the people as a whole are entirely renewed. They are not recognizable. If we meet them at the end now of chapter 13, they don't look like the people that we saw earlier in the book. And even, even though is fairly spare when it comes to criticizing his audience. Most importantly probably, the fountain that's opened has no connection to the Old Testament sacrificial system. There's, there's no dependence upon the Sinai system for the remission of sins that's announced here. And to go back to the very dour uh, background of this whole thing, um, the problems of no king, no temple, no possession of the land, no peace, and so on, which were all realities for Zechariah's audience, disappear. Remember, chapter 12 already has uh, God defending his people against their enemies and establishing, establishing them in a city, which we'll see more of in a second. So this what we're seeing here, this covenant relationship into which they come in very brief terms at the end of chapter 13, is something radically better than the Sinai covenant would offer. And the participants, the covenant members, are themselves also radically different than Israel at large had been in the post exilic period. So this is summed up in the section that I read, but it's, it's nice enough that I want to just read it again. In summary, the remnant call upon God's name. This is Joel 2. He responds, they are my people, and they answer, the Lord is our God. That's in short phrases. The essence of what is now in place, which wasn't in place before Zechariah started describing all these changes. Okay, last Section 4, Responding to Zechariah's Message of God's Grace. To be fully appreciated, and this is why we're looking at the New Testament, uh, God's grace needs to be seen in light of his complete work in Jesus Christ. And for that, we need to look briefly at the New Testament before focusing on some more practical um, reflections. So, notice that if you have a handout, that is. The title after section 4, the first subtitle is the Eschatological, so living between the time when God has begun His the final stage of his work in Christ's first coming and Christ's return. So it's it's uh, the era of the covenant, if you want to put it in covenantal terms. Uh, but in other words, it's the era in which these prophecies of Zechariah are being progressively fulfilled. Mm-hmm. We've seen a few examples of these along the way. You're aware probably of the quotes in Matthew and John for Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem reference is made to Zechariah 9.9. 9. Um, the one who was pierced, this is in the Gospel of John, chapter 19, in reference to earlier, um, the one whom they have pierced is explicitly identified as, as Jesus Christ on the basis of a uh, verse in uh, Zechariah. So these are just a couple probes, plus the ones that we saw, that help us see that what Zechariah is announcing, God is fulfilling in the New Testament, beginning with the incarnation of the Son. So we don't need to wait till whatever strange period lives in history. We are living in the time of fulfillment of these processes, which are at the same time progressive. It's not going to happen all at once, and um, sometimes we're not sure exactly what sequence, but the direction is clear. The same. Is, so I give you some examples from the Gospels. Let me give you just a few more uh, that flesh out, especially the, the messianic part of the Zechariah's prophecy. Uh, and think of the priesthood which was rehabilitated, so to speak or the the resolution of sin in Hebrews, for example, Jesus as the high priest did something that no other high priest did before, which was to sit down when his work was done so uh, there you have the the same idea as this fountain, which is always available And as a a fountain, it's not a reservoir with a limited capacity, it's a fountain which has unlimited uh, ability to cleanse Uh, Paul uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, teaches us, teaches us that Christ is ruling until everything is put under his feet. So we have the Davidic Messiah progressively establishing his rule and reigning through his word and spirit. Acts 2, I didn't make this connection until recently, but Acts 2 is when the spirit is poured out on the church and the, the, the text that's cited by the apostles there is Joel 2, which is true. But the first thing that happens when the spirit is poured out, they ask men and brethren, what shall we do? They begin to repent, which is the first thing that Zechariah said emphasizes in the section we looked at. So Joel and Zechariah will converge in their uh, prophecies regarding the Pentecost. And last, this is I'm mentioning this in connection with the two battle scenes, so to speak, 12, 1 through nine and most of chapter fourteen. Think of Jesus' words in Matthew sixteen that the gates of hell will not prevail against His church. Um, that is true until now. It will remain true until the end of the age. Uh, God continues by his word and spirit uh, to pour out his grace on his church, to protect it, and to uh, bring it to its final uh, mature form. Now, some fitting responses to God's grace. Uh, let me just say, first of all, it goes without saying, but I want to say it because it's important that God's grace calls for a response. We can't skip this one. It's obvious we need, to, we need to think it through. The definition of grace as unmerited favor is simple enough, that came up a moment ago, but it's hardly exhaustive or even ample as the definition. So as I was saying then, knowledge of God's grace is possible only when we see our need of it. We really need to, again, don't know how, how important something is until you have a need for which it is the only solution. And we also understand that God is in no way obliged to give us the grace that would mean that that is not grace. So if it's totally free when we get the and it's absolutely necessary. Now we start to see it's grace in capital letters, if you will, as opposed to, to lowercase letters. Mm-hmm. If grace and salvation belong, belong together as cause and effect, which is definitely what we're seeing in Ephesians 2, that was we discussed earlier today, our meditation on God and His grace should be unceasing, ever deepening, and the source of lots of things, including love, joy, gratitude, and praise. Uh, second, learning. This is um, this is important. Uh, we need to be reminded that even the act of learning, whatever you take away from this talk, is not due to me, in no sense It's not due to you. Whatever we learn from God, of God, is genuinely granted us by God. Um, that's what theological, spiritual learning is. It's not something we can take just by study, just by effort, just by um, our willpower. In his discussion of how to learn from God, Augustine asserts that we must, quote, have our hearts subdued by piety, which we all know is not something we're going to do naturally, of our own power, so that we are able to receive God's critiques and benefit from them. On that basis, he says, we learn that God is to be loved for his own sake, with all our heart, soul, and mind. And, he continues, only in this way can the Christian turn from every form of, notice this phrase, fatal joy in transitory things to things eternal. In other words, this is how someone else puts it, learning of God and from God can never be anything other than an appeal to God for the miracle of mercy. Now, oh. next time you're in a worship service, say, 20 minutes or, so, or something like that, after dinner break, or on Sunday, um, that would be a suitable prayer as you sit down. Learning from God can never be anything other than an appeal to God for the miracle of mercy specifically in learning of him. Our dependence on the grace of God in benefiting from Scripture also brings to the fore an office of Christ that isn't terribly prominent in the book of 2nd That's not surprising as a short That of prophet, in this case, coming back to learning from him, it's the risen Christ who, by the Spirit, proclaims himself in Scripture, both in the Old and New Testaments. And here now, it is he who is warmly and powerfully calling us to hear him. Now on to some more concrete results, repentance. This should not surprise me. We discussed this already. Chapter 12 and 13 of Zechariah show the interrelation of contrition. That was the first passage. Faith, obedience, sanctification—all these things that God is doing—he is removes desire for false prophets and whatnot from His people's hearts, or what the Reformation calls repentance, this lifelong practice. Because these elements are interrelated, we can't just choose to repent but not to believe, or choose to believe but not to repent. In the same way, the Christian life is integrated. We can't choose to pray but not read our Bibles. We can't do those things but not choose to go to public worship. We can't choose those things but not choose to mortify our pride. Let's go for more meaningful, difficult ones now. Um, the Christian life is progressively experiencing being conformed to Christ and his death and resurrection. That's a, that's a classic Pauline image. Someone already made this point today, so I guess we're thinking on the, the same track. Life and death are definitive states. You're all dead, or you're all alive. Um, therefore, no identity, and we're kind of somewhere in between. I'd say, and already not yet. So, put off the old nature, put on the new. Um, but no part of our life falls outside those you know, that paradigm of putting off what is old and putting on is new. So, our entire person needs to be committed, uh, submit to God in the Christian life. Yes, our beliefs, that's probably one of the easier parts for you. Priorities, attitudes, as well as our thoughts or to do. It's a holistic thing. All that we are, you know, we've got a creational perspective. God created us as what we are with all our facilities and capacities to glorify him better. Nothing is left out. Gratitude. Those of you who are familiar with Heidelberg Catechism, which is probably the vast majority here, all the better, will remember that the third section is entitled Gratitude for Thankfulness. Notice how prominent the grace that brings us into union with Christ is in question answer 86, which begins the third section. I'll read it for you. Since then we are delivered from our misery, merely of grace through Christ, without any merit of ours, why must we still do good works? Answer, because Christ, having redeemed and delivered us by his blood, also renews us by his Holy Spirit after his image, that so we may testify by the whole of our conduct our gratitude to God for his blessings, and that he may be praised by us also, that everyone may be assured in himself of his faith by the fruits thereof, and that by our godly conversation others may be gained to Christ. Now a lot can be said about this answer, but I'm going to be great. Notice how the must of the question, why must we do good works? Which is sort of approaches it as an obligation is answered by the affirmation that good works are the inevitable fruit of faith of the new birth, fruit, of, fruit of faith of the new birth, and they express our uncompelled gratitude to God. What I'm getting at here is the difference between an obligation, I'm not sure if the, the form of the catechism intended this way, There's, the question is an obligation, why must I? Uh, the answer is, it's an inevitable thing. So the I see here uh, trying to express the idea that it's natural. If it's inevitable, it's natural. It has to come forth. The good works must be produced um, in someone who is regenerate. So it's not literally automatic. This involves people's wills and choices and sanctification and prayer and meditation and so on. But it is natural for the believer. The more we understand, to come back to the main theme of grace, that absolutely free, loving nature of God's grace to us in Jesus Christ, its power, its cost, its immeasurable extent, the more we will desire to respond as completely and as wholeheartedly as possible. In the hearts and minds of those who have received this grace moreover, I would submit that nothing less is fitting, nothing less is satisfying, and nothing less is possible. But our goal is always to do as Obey as completely as we can. If, if you are in a position, or if I'm in a position, where this is good enough for today, you kind of slack off. There are major problems. Holistic worship. Finally, the link between gratitude and good works, which we just discussed, opens up another perspective on an appropriate, personal, spirit-enabled response to God's grace than worship. Uh, here, I mean worship in the New Testament theme sense of worship, which includes public worship, to be sure, but is larger than that. So I'm getting, again, by another angle at the idea that the Christian life is holistic. The whole life, the whole person is to be consecrated to God. Um, Paul, for example, on this uh, angle, exhorts believers to offer themselves as living sacrifices. It's clearly reusing OT sacrificial language of something that never happened in any Israelite at the tabernacle even refers to the financial support that was sent to uh, needy Jews in Jerusalem as a uh, form of ministry, which is a word that you can find in Exodus and Numbers for the work of the Levites along the tabernacle. So this, my point, is that this what was then official, organized worship, those terms of course can still refer to that in the New Testament, but they also refer to ordinary, everyday things that people do. The Christian life in Romans 12, tithes for a needy congregation in the uh, Another passage in Romans 15. All right, it's time to conclude. You'll see the title. Uh, I don't have time to work all these details into it, so let me just mention them here and we'll say the least they Trinitarian worship is the end of all things. End is in, in, in quotation marks meaning it's the goal, it's not the stop, stop point, but rather the goal. The far-reaching concept of worship in the New Testament, so yes, public worship, but but, but much more, dovetails nicely with the multifaceted description of worship at the end of Zechariah 14. If you glance at the last six verses of of chapter 14, you will see what I mean. It is definitely not insignificant that Zechariah's book ends with a description of God's victory, this is 1 through 15, followed by worldwide worship of him, verses 16 through 21. In addition to the wealth of the nations which comes to God's royal city, this is verse 14, and the worship of his people, 16 and 17, in that organized sense. The feast of tabernacles, or booths, is mentioned three times in these six verses. Now this feast reminded Israel of two things. One, God's protection and provision during the wilderness, and once they're in the land, the abundant harvest. So keep that movement from Egypt to the promised land in mind, and we will get where we need to go. The adaptation of this feast using the Feast of Booth. Why in the Feast of Booth in some eschatological context when God has finally established his, his kingdom? There are reasons for that. It's a second Exodus kind of thing, meaning uh, God brings out of their exile East of Eden, the whole sin problem that was so probed up, uh, especially in the section we looked at, from this East of Eden expelled from the garden condition into this now, remember, the elastic city of Jerusalem where everything fits. All the worshippers fit with. Literally, impossible. You can't fit all the worshippers that God will, will, will welcome in Jerusalem, in the little city, but that I gave be uh, into our program So we have a second Exodus replay in which God brings people, not just as people from his Old Covenant people from Egypt, but people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, into his new Jerusalem in uh, the end of verse 14, with this goal, to come back to the subterranean, of worshipping him, the king, the Lord Almighty. So their unanimous, unceasing praise will be of his glorious grace, as we've seen throughout the work, manifested in their salvation from the very beginning, the morning that begins the whole process to where they find themselves now. May we all be among them, and until then, may God graciously cause his word to dwell richly in us for his glory and our salvation. Thank you for your attention have Five minutes, or if you want to stay, that's fine with me, for questions or comments. Yes, from um, we to apply it to the church. Uh, the youngs. Yes. Um, should first should be on uh, the context of Jeremiah 31 and, and then this, and then uh, Romans chapter 11, that that will happen as a very large thing in the future. And uh, now we're going experience again because Israel was cut off and we will have yes. a blessing, but then he said when they have their fullness, then we'll have even more. Right. Uh, just so everyone heard, the question was, uh, how do we approach the content of, of Zechariah in light of um, Romans 9-11 in particular, and the New Covenant in Jeremiah 31? Yes, what, what we non-Jews are currently experiencing is the, obviously the result of grace, us being grafted into the olive tree. We're not native to the olive tree. Uh, and indeed, God's old covenant will we'll be grafted back in. That's the whole topic of Romans nine eleven, which is for everyone's benefit. Just put it very of an alternative, yes. Instead of so, saying this here, I will say me too. They first, me too. And yes, what's going to happen to them in the future is happening to us now, and right, right away. And, but, and, and, yes, and uh, the first disciples were Judas, so that's why she started with the lost sheep of Israel. But he didn't, he didn't. other questions. Yes, sir. Uh, you probably covered it. I probably just missed it. Can you um, redefine, maybe in a more technical sense, what you meant by uh, holistic worship? Yes. What I mean is... Thank is you for your question. Uh, everything outside of public worship. Okay. No, no, that's perfect, though. What I mean is um, thoughts towards deeds, the way you treat your neighbor, the way you use your money, the way you use your spare time, how you think of others... Um, Nothing falls outside of the sphere of sanctification. Would be a more normal way to say it. Other questions or comments? Okay. Um, so I've heard sometimes that uh, Zechariah is very important for understanding Revelation, and uh, with that last portion that you showed with coming into Jerusalem, Eli- the a New Jerusalem idea, and any any comment on that revelation Zechariah? Yes. I would just, again, the question is what's the relationship between the book of Revelation and Zechariah? Uh, I think they're both moving in the same direction, meaning towards a New Jerusalem where uh, God's people from all nations are brought in and I said earlier that we get the impression the land is the only land, so the, the scroll and the, the basket flying away. Uh, this, the field of vision, if you will, sometimes it's the land, sometimes it's the city, but they do the same thing uh, in that that's where you want to be. If you don't go there, at least to worship, granted, there's this possibility that they come because it's the festival, so the OT have to go to Jerusalem for those things. So there is some terrain will, outside Jerusalem, but still, it's very much the focal point. Um, maybe not quite as clearly as the book of Revelation, because on the outside of Jerusalem, there are only those who are lost. Here, you come, uh, at least once a year for weeks, to celebrate, so we're probably still on the land, but very strongly focused on And it is new. That's what I'm saying. The people who go to it are new. The city is new. And if you have time to read, uh, the kind of holiness we normally see in the temple, for example, is on the bells of horses. Now horses don't enter the temple, but it says holy on the bells. So the whole city is is uh, has the same status, if you will, as the people and as the temple. Yes. What did you mean by that normative property of God's word? Well, so this goes back to the the false prophet idea. If there are competing voices, uh, I at least need to make the choice. So we do this every day. God's word is still normal, despite what is telling us. It gets complicated, though, if um, you have to imagine false prophets. So you're, you're living in Israel. Prophets can't necessarily be verified in real time. You know, if the word comes true, that may take a month, it may take a year. So then you have two people saying things. Yahweh's prophets tend to be very demanding. This is what the covenant says you need to do it, the false prophets tend to be much more pleasing to the ears. I what he said, I'm here to pronounce something much more palatable. It's really not that big a deal, and so on and so forth. Uh, Insofar as I listen to those things, I'm saying that God's word is not normative. In terms of how it functions for me, it remains normative. I remain responsible to it, but as far as I'm concerned, it's not normative if I am listening to a false prophet. May it never happen. Okay. Let's. Um, if if you want to stay for more questions, that's great. I'll be here until you can't take it anymore. But if you want to leave, feel free to do so. Thank you for your presence. Just one more on my